Hello, everybody. I hope you can hear me. It's the first time I'm doing this uh, with a guest. And uh, say hello to Damien as well for being here and being a bit of my guinea pig for the first live stream. <laughs> um, let's see where everyone is tuning in from. And uh, hello, Damien. Thank you for being here. Did I say David? I didn't Did say, say David. David. I don't think so. Damien. Yeah. It's they're so close and you guys are so like every time I, I think of one, I also think of the other. Because you guys are like when you when you're in um like conferences, you're always together yeah. from what I've seen, and that's like such a nice dynamic. So well first and foremost, thank you for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Not a problem at all. Yeah, it's funny you say that actually. I I told I told Fowler I was coming on the show last night. I said, hey, do you want to join? <laughs> the meeting I just came out of, I was in with him and Steve Sanderson and uh, uh, Stefan Halter on the ESPNet team. We were talking about some cool Razor stuff we're looking at. But I said, oh, yeah, it's just after our Razor meeting. You should come on the call. <laughs> he said, ah, oh, no, it's all right. <laughs> but no, we, I actually, um, it was a, there's a, the story behind us both presenting a lot together was um, I kind of encouraged him really, you know, early on to come and do talks. And uh, we very early on, I think he did one talk by himself at Monkey Space, which was the like the pre-Xamarin, when right. it wasn't called Xamarin conference. Um, and he had some horrible technical difficulties. He had to do like a, he was presenting from an old MacBook and he, he, he was limited to 640 by 480. So he had to yep. do his whole talk. It was a signal art talk, like at 640 by 480. And then after that, um, yeah, we kind of talked together and it was kind of just takes a lot of the pressure off when you're new to talking, then you've got someone um, you're there to do it with you. and. Yeah. I, it's just something I've always naturally found fairly easy. So I, I, I was always fairly confident doing speaking, but that's not true, obviously, for a lot of folks. And so yeah. it's nice. And we, we have, a, I think we have a nice dynamic on stage. Yeah, I was about to say, it's a very interesting dynamic as well, because the first time I saw, I saw Fowler was in one of those ASP.NET Core standups that you were doing at the time when it was like V-Next days, which is when I started working with .NET professionally. And I could... And then I later, I think I saw an NDC talk and it was you and Fowler. And it was rough from the Fowler side because it was when he was like really stuttering. And I could really understand that, oh my God, this guy's a genius because he's thinking 200 miles per hour, but he can't, his tongue can just catch up to how fast he's thinking. Right. And I'm like, oh, and you were there obviously to make sure he doesn't get derailed because sometimes he just wants to really talk about something and he goes it's like hey, no no let's, let's talk about this so yeah I, I i love seeing you guys together and are you still are you now like applying again to to be on stage i mean so we did we've done a couple of talks this year so we did just very recently stuff that we didn't have to travel for so we did one in at um what was it one or two i can't remember now i know that we did we did one recently it was only a couple of months ago at a i guess it was ignite is that the one that okay. i just did um and so we did a, a tech talk i think they were called there on like what's new in dotnet 7 and live coding and so we just you know threw a bunch of demos together and uh, you know, some rough narrative arc we put together and you know a few days before and had fun doing that but that was kind of the first time we've done it in a long time obviously and you know the truth is you know we we, we we still get asked but i've kind of gotten to the point i don't want to really travel anymore 
Um, I, even before that, it had gotten it, it had just gotten increasingly difficult to kind of leave my family and all that type of stuff, and I just kind of aged out of it in a way. Like <laughs> yeah. you know, for a lot of people, it still it still feels it feeds their soul. But I you know, even just standing on stage, it was the talks were organised by uh, Scott Hanselman. Um, he's a you know a very good friend of mine, and I said to him on stage, I said, you know, this might be the last time I do this. He's like, what? What do you mean? You're so good at it or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, like it just doesn't feed my soul anymore. Like, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm fine in the moment. I'll do it and I'll do a great job of it. I'll do the best I can. But then I just like, yeah, this does, doesn't give me the buzz it used to. Now that said, I used to love going to Oslo and going to London. Yeah. I love London. I love Oslo. I love doing those conferences. Um, but I don't like traveling. Yeah. <laughs> so it's always a trade off, you know? I, I think if I had to rank the worst thing that I have to sort of do, but I really don't like doing, like public, yeah, public speaking and that traveling side would be that. I love going to conferences to run workshops. Yes. But, you know, because it's the engineering itch that is being scratched there. And I don't really want to stand in the front of like so many people and talk about something. But when you run workshops, you kind of have to because you get your expense, the traveling through that through your talk right. and it's a different it's a very different vibe so i don't know if you know like fowler and i we teach workshops whenever we go and yeah. do ndc that's what that's always been part of the deal um from fairly early on is that we not only just did the talks we would do a two-day workshop in yeah the, in, during the workshop days um and so we've built a few different workshops on ASP.NET core all the way back from version one all the way through so the last one we did was called the app building workshop we did a complete overhaul like at the beginning we would kind of do two days teaching feature by feature and yeah. I was always a little frustrated that we were unable to talk about features in the context of building an app and like why you would use them. So we completely redid the workshop to like build an app and you would basically build a conference site. Right. Because you're at a conference. And so we would use, was it that the open something, something that there's a conference thing that people that they use. And so we would ask them to give us the XML file dumps or JSON file dumps, or whatever they were. Yeah. Um, and we would build a site that used that to you know, give you a session plan agenda. You would sign in, then you would be able to have a session planner. You would tick the things that you wanted to attend and you would get your own little personal agenda. And so I, we always found that was a much, uh, you know, I felt a much more uh, productive way of learning a new technology. And you would get questions from people that were far more relevant to the type of stuff you were doing when yeah. building apps rather than just, oh, we just taught you how to use configuration and let me ask you questions about configuration but not inside the context of anything real so we found it super super fun and, and super useful and just the like i said the vibe of a workshop is so much more fun like you're there for eight hours two days in a row so you're 16 hours in a room with maybe 10 to 30 people depending on how many people have registered and it's really intimate and you get to learn a lot more about what folks are doing you can be a little bit more candid yeah because um, it's not recorded and all that yeah. type of stuff so we have much more interesting discussions um, that a lot of time, you know, can get into things that you just can't do in a 45 minute talk or even a one hour guest interview on a YouTube channel. Um, sometimes you need a lot more th that intimacy so you can yeah. discuss nuance in a safe kind of place, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't want to go too deep into that, but I also love that when someone will bring some knowledge from the audience as well, because some people yeah. don't just only come to learn, they also come to validate that what they know is correct. Yep. and that they're on the right path and you're going to find something that you didn't know. I don't know how often it happens to you because, well, you're building the bloody thing. But uh, to me, sometimes someone will say, yeah, you, you can do that. And I'm like, that's a very good point. And then I'm going to go and then teach it next time, which is 
yeah fantastic absolutely it, it, it's interesting because like i before microsoft i you know had a job similar to you i was a, i was a consultant and i was an in-house dev for seven years at an ambulance service in australia so i was like a you know, classic microsoft intranet kind of dev and i was mostly building stuff for in consumption behind the firewall and i was i was the only dev right that, that i was the guy um and then after that worked for a consulting company in australia doing .NET websites you know really big stuff in australia scale anyway um auction sites and various other things before i joined microsoft but that was a long time ago now like that yeah. was 2009 was the last time i was working professionally to build websites for other people and since then i've been building product and that's a different thing and so you know being able to listen to what people are what challenges they're facing today uh when building stuff some of it's the same it's like some some stuff doesn't change right it doesn't matter yeah. how many decades it's been some stuff is the same other stuff is you know i couldn't have imagined you know various complexities and things that some folks are dealing with now in their day-to-day -day building apps just to you know for internet style stuff or whatever so it's good i think i even remember when you start and start, i can't remember which talk it was i think it was an ndc talk where it's you and Fowler and you ask how many of you build like products for a living or like big big whatever and everyone just raised their hands and you're like we don't we build .NET for a living you know right. and it's a it's a different world type of situation but I, I like that you that you touch on that now you mentioned that the last time you were full time for a non Microsoft company was 2009 now I saw that your title is principal program manager architect. And that like I've seen the principal program manager before, but that architect side of things, like how does your job, how is it different than a normal product manager? Because you write quite a bit of code, quite a bit of the samples we see. Yeah. Yeah. So like the program management role at Microsoft already was one that was classically ill-defined or not ill-defined, but like difficult to define um, versus something like a software engineer. So program management traditionally was part of the engineering part of Microsoft, you know, so there's HR and there's marketing and da, 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 da. And then there was engineering and engineering traditionally was made up of software developers, software developers, software testers and program managers. Um, and that has changed, you know, in, in since then now actually Microsoft's going through a, a, a program management is moving to the more traditional pro product management term as it's used through the rest of, you know, big technology. Um, traditionally at Microsoft product management meant marketing and it was a completely different discipline and a different part of the company then you would obviously work with the engineering groups or the program managers um as far as as far as product promotion um but the architect thing is 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 it, mostly it's a vanity title as, as we used to call right. them so it was it was a suffix that was non-officially kind of reserved for folks once they got to a certain level of seniority who were doing a certain type of work right. who had decided in within their um their fit inside program management they did they did certain right. things and so because the program management and product management role is still very much a spectrum and there are some folks who work more closely with engineering and with the implementation of the product than others who work much more closely with the customer doing analysis and more well i think we would have called it a business analyst back in the day um and doing that type of development or more of the modern style you know data science even style of, of of product development where you're crunching numbers you're doing surveys um and you're trying to get you know a sense of market fit you know market opportunity those type of things and much more business kind of focused stuff and that's all part of product management now so for me the architect title you know pm architect as it is in my title 
mostly means like I kind of bridge that area between engineering and right. product management where I think about product. I think about how we position .NET, how we position parts of .NET, ASP.NET Core, MAUI, those type of things. And when I say position, I mean, where does it fit into the wider software development market, software development ecosystem set of offerings from competitors or the community? Um, and we think about that. And then how does a thing fit inside of the wider .NET offering? Does it make sense? Is there consistency? If we were to do this, does it really not feel like .NET? Um, what challenges do we have as a product versus as a, as a, as a technical stack? Because those are very different things as you can, you can probably imagine. Um, but then I also think a lot about implementation with regards to how that relates to uh, the product. And so there's a whole part of implementation I don't think about. You know, the engineers think about those things. They think about the day-to-day, -day, they think about serviceability. Um, you know, we can't just write code. We have to think about writing code, having it be part of the product consumed by our customers. And then that code has to live through a life cycle, which most developers have to think about that. Like every application has a life cycle. Every piece of software has a life cycle. And sometimes they span decades. Um, but software that's consumed by other software yeah. has a very particular type of life cycle, you know, set of life cycle challenges that we have to think about. So I, I don't think about so much of the implementation details in those things. But I know enough that I can think about how those things will affect what the customer sees and which ones of those won't affect what the customer sees. I've also been around long enough that I've learned the lessons of making decisions and then seeing them go a certain way and going, ah, yeah, that didn't work out the way that we thought we shouldn't do that again. What, um, what a perfect segue to a question I had here, which is, well, if you if you look at what you've done, especially with the work you've, you've done in like, .NET, you know, vNext, which is .NET Core and then ASP.NET Core, what's one decision you made mm. that if you went back, you would tell to your old self, don't do this, this is a terrible idea? Oh, well, that's a very good question. I mean, there's a few, the, the, the examples that immediately come to mind are ones that we actually then change. Like, you know, so like something like the startup? So yeah, like stuff between ASP.NET Core 1 and 2 and 3. Like you, I know you lived through, yeah. you know, DNX or VNX as it was called and, and then DNX and then V1, RC1 to RC2, where we completely changed the tooling. Yeah. Um, and then version two and then finally version three where things really started to settle down and they today stuff today still kind of looks like it did in three to a certain extent, um, you know, the, the first versions of ASP.NET Core, everything were packages. Like there was basically nothing. You got nothing by default. You had to add a package, including all the system dot stuff. And so file new ASP.NET Core app in version one had a bunch of packages and you had to pay the restore time for those things that impacted deployment decisions. Um, and it meant that if you didn't know what package something was in, it was really difficult for you to find it a lot of the time. And yeah. that was because we were looking at other ecosystems and that was the status quo in Node, which we looked at a lot. It was the status quo in, in Ruby, um, although Rails obviously had a lot of built-in functionality, which is what you would get in something like ASP.NET Core MVC. Um, and so we felt that that was, that was the right way of doing things. And you know, in hindsight, it was a bit of an overcorrection from what we had in .NET Framework which yeah. is you install a framework and it's all there. Right? Yeah. Like everything you could possibly need is there. Um, and then you didn't deploy it with your application. It was part of the platform. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, a bit of an overcorrection. I think where we've landed now is a place where we consistently have to make trade-offs between 
smart defaults what is the default experience that we that we offer you that is going to be enough or makes the correct set of trade-offs for hopefully around 80 percent of use cases you know, customers or projects and then have enough flexibility so that for those other scenarios you can make it do what you want um even if that isn't the default that's what was very difficult back in the .NET framework days a lot of the times was that the defaults were the defaults and if you needed to do something different if you we, we would say internally when you walk off the golden path yeah um you basically fall off a cliff it's not right. a nice graduation of grass fields and things where you can like you know it's like oh i was a step off this path that's in the microsoft demo and then it's just like this horrible abyss with spikes at the bottom like that's what we were trying to avoid um and we don't always get it right a lot of the time it takes iteration and i'm a big believer in iteration um towards a goal especially in our industry where during the iteration the goals and the requirements change um and that's just kind of part and parcel of of the world that we live but at the same time it creates tension because people um don't like their cheese being moved and for good reason because it's disruptive and you know a lot of our customers you know i don't want to use the word just but they're just trying to get their jobs done right yeah. like no. people are trying yeah. to be productive they just want to build production yeah, ultimately, yeah, deliver value to their customer. Would you would right. you say that what you delivered with minimal APIs then it's very uncharacteristic for like traditional ASP.NET Core and Microsoft, which is you now are stripped down naked, and there is no, you have to choose your own path, and this can be a double-edged sword. You know, in the hands of someone very good, you have full control, but what's the experience of the little guy or the little girl? You know, how how does that look like? Is yeah, so I just I noticed someone said my audio is a bit low. I've just I, turned it up a bit. And I increased it. I added some gain as oh, well. Okay. So. We'll be blowing everyone's ears yeah. out now. Um, yeah, so minimal was is actually a pretty fascinating thing that we went through. Um, it's uh, fundamentally what happened was the set of principles that we kind of used and grounded ourselves on um, that we used as a base to then go off and build features and, and you know, composition primitives and things that you would then use in the stack to build your applications we introduced new ones like we basically realized that some of those principles were either grounding .NET or ASP.NET in a, as a product in a place that it had been for a long time that made it difficult for us to achieve certain types of things um, or they were principles that were becoming a little at odds with what we were seeing elsewhere in the marketplace and at the end of the day, it's not just about us writing code, like we're building a product and with that product needs to be appealing and it has growth goals. And like we, we are working to try and hit those growth goals. And that is, again, sometimes it's disruptive. It requires us to make changes or decisions that introduce concepts or ways of doing things that might look different to what people are familiar with. And given our longevity, like we're 20 years in now, that's always going to be disruptive. Like you just can't avoid it um, when you've got millions of people using using the stack. So with something like minimal, the specific principles I, I, I'm referring to is that I think the way I think about it is that for a long time, .NET frameworks, application level frameworks, have been built on a certain set of primitives. There's a certain set of principles that you use to build a framework that then an application developer extends or utilizes to build their application and some of those things are things like there's a type system and you build base classes and base types that people leverage in order to compose their application um, which means that the extensibility and the organization of your code 
is very much um, dictated by the base types and the base classes that we provide for you, the, the base class library, right? Um, whereas minimal is very much not that. It's, as you well know, like you don't derive from a type, you don't implement an interface, you pass a delegate and it's typed as delegate. Like you don't even have a funk of T or whatever overload, it's literally delegate. Yeah. And then everything after that is convention. Like it's basically, we look at the delegate as it is at, as it is at runtime. Um, oh, okay, so it's a delegate. What the delegate you actually passed us takes four parameters. It returns this type of thing. As a result of that, we map that to the composition principles in minimal, which are we automatically bind these types of parameters. If your parameter is a complex type and it implements a method called bind async with this specific shape, not an interface, although we have that now because we've got static yeah. abstract interfaces, which caught up, um, then we do that. If you return a complex object that doesn't implement iResult, then we just serialize it to JSON. Yeah. Um, if it does implement iResult, we don't do that. We call your method. And they're all incredibly kind of thin or, or naked as you as you yeah. said um and that that then raises questions like well that's where's the structure like how do i organize stuff and we're like well it's code you organize it according to whatever primitives the language gives you to do organization and whatever primitives which include classes and types and delegates and static classes and like well, you can use all that stuff we're not going to tell you you can't use it anymore we're not requiring that you use it because we just take delegate um, and then we layer on sort of the application level primitives like dependency injection. Yeah, we support that. It's automatic. It comes yeah. through. We support attributes for certain things. We support composition through filters now, which we didn't initially. It was really certainly wasn't complete in six. I would argue that now in seven, um, it's a far more complete um, set of primitives that allow you to basically build any application type. Um, and it's really also, it was, was part of the effort of us looking at MVC, which let's face it, was really just taken from what it was and then bolted on top of ASP.NET Core yeah. with fairly, with really not huge changes. Like conceptually, it maps almost yeah. one to one. And that was a directive. Like that was, we, we, we did consider doing things a little more boldly. And we were told, you know, at the time that we were building .NET Core, no, like you really shouldn't do that for, for now. We want to make it so that if you have an MVC app, you can ha take your controllers and you can reasonably, you know, move them over, even if all the base types have changed and all that type of stuff. Um, but we got into a point where it was like, no, I think we can do something a little more bold now. Um, and we had this project from early on, which was, we called it Project Houdini. We've talked about it a few yeah. times, which was how do we make MVC disappear yeah. and just take the parts of MVC that are, um, that would be useful elsewhere and make them part of ASP.NET Core. Just make them primitives of the of the framework. So it doesn't matter if you're building a Signaler hub or a gRPC service or a controller or an API or a Razor view or whatever, you all you have the same primitives all the time. You have the same routing, the same uh, way to do model binding or request binding. You have the same way of doing DI, the same way of doing config and logging. That's what we want. Yeah. MVC very much isn't that because it still has all this stuff that only works in MVC. And so, with minimal, that was the next step. We did routing in .NET Core 3. We did the what we call global routing or whatever it was at the yeah. time. It's really endpoint routing. That's a primitive that just basically think of it as a core part of ASP.NET Core. You know, you have a server, you have middleware, then you have routing, which is built on middleware. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then from that, we've got this request delegate factory, which is the foundation of minimal APIs, which is effectively take a dele delegate and turn it into what's known as a request delegate, which is what middleware is. It's yeah. just a request delegate, takes a context, returns a task, that's it. Um, 
everything stems from that. And so Request Delegate Factory layers on all this binding that I talked about. You can bind stuff from the query string. You can bind stuff from the body. It'll do JSON serialization on the way in and the way out. That's the new primitive. And so we're now talking about um, like the meeting I just had and what we're talking about for .NET 8 was how do we now build on top of that new yeah. set of primitives for things like Razor? And like, what's the next step for Razor where we've got a few dialects of that today. We've got kind of the older CSHTML stuff. That's then interpreted as, e as, as either Razor views or Razor pages, which are both part of MVC. And then we've also got Razor components, which is a newer dialect, yeah. which fundamentally looks the same, but it emits different classes behind the scenes with a different object model. Um, and that's designed for use in different types of applications. So we're looking at a way to kind of, how do we take that to a next level and um, make it a little more universal so that it's a little more consistent. So, yeah. So if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong on this, but you were the driving force be behind Razor Pages. Is that correct? Yeah. Which sort of yeah, takes I this... And I, yeah. yeah, so, and it's interesting. I can't quite remember. At the time I was working with MVC, but I can't quite remember if it was Backlash when those came out. I remember loving them. But to me, Razor Pages did to MVC on the view level what minimal APIs do to MVC on the... Uh, um, controller level and it just makes so much sense to me so it, it was like a no-brainer but what what do you think about ultimately the reception of razor pages now which is very positive everyone talks about them very fondly but minimal api still have this what am i supposed to do with this thing is this the future why are we copying node <laughs> yeah i mean it is interesting we definitely did see that type of um hesitance from a lot of folks it was like why you know why are you changing how we build razor stuff um a lot of people love their controllers like they love the mvc pattern um and i think there's a combination of folks who who like it because they like doing it that way and frankly folks who like it because we told them it was better like because if you fast you go rewind before that we introduced mvc like in 2009 yeah. um 2008 and we had all, all of our customers were doing you know, mostly web forms before that, um, or, you know, alt frameworks. And then we introduced MVC, which was clearly inspired by, you know, Ruby on Rails. Um, and we we marketed it and we had the exact pro same problem, which is, wait, there's MVC and there's web forms and the web forms view engine can run in MVC. And then we introduced web pages in 2010, which had Razor. And so then we had web forms, web pages, and MVC, and then we made MVC support Razor views and web form view. And like, it was a complete hodgepodge, right? And we had the exact same set of product positioning and kind of marketing or messaging issues, which was how do we position MVC to our existing customers? How do we position web pages? And it's, you know, it's very similar. We did all those things for reasons for product competitive reasons like web pages was a php compete and then you know it's 13 years later now so i can just say what what the deal was like yeah. the deal at the time was asp was part of the group that owned iis and iis is a windows server component and so the product strategy was sell windows server into hosting companies companies that host websites why? Because WordPress was taking over that market. WordPress was beating the world. And so the strategy that had come up, that the, the, the business had come up with was, well, to sell, to, to help push against that, to compete against that, 
we need to sell more Windows Server into hosting companies because PHP was being run on Linux. This is well before Microsoft loved Linux in all those days, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so in order to do so, we had to build a web framework that people would want to build sites on in order to, to, to deliver that strategy. And that's where web pages came from. Um, and MVC was very similar, right? As a, as a competitor to Ruby on Rails. And you could argue that Razor Pages and Minimal were just latest incantations of that type of thinking. Um, but I don't think so this time. I think this is, you know, we're not trying to change our business strategy or anything this time around. It's simply more about when we ask a question of growth, how do we grow .NET? How do we ensure that new developers, when they're looking at the landscape, consider .NET as a place that they would want to go? Um, plus, you know, trying to face head on some of the stigma that still exists with regards to .NET as a product. You yeah, know, we hear like, you know, .NET is good for banks, like stuff like that is we hear from potential customers or from potential new developers. Um, we look at what they're using and we look at what they value and we go, well, okay, it turns out C Sharp is complex. ASP.NET is complex when you compare it to writing Hello World in Node using Express yeah. or in Go using Jin. Um, and we have to react to that. Like we have to figure out a way to address those types of concerns without blowing up .NET. We don't want to bifurcate. We don't want to split the community. We don't want to create two products again. We've been there. So we need part of product design is figuring out how do we create a graduation? Um, and we, you know, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's very difficult to create a graduation. Um, you know, you mentioned the startup class. Yeah. We we did that for you know a few releases and then when we introduced web application which is the result of a study that Fowler was involved in um it became quite clear that this model of having it all together was much simpler for people to understand it directly compared a lot better to competitive stacks the you know, stacks that they were learning or that they knew of and they hadn't quite decided what they wanted to focus on um and we thought we could build we could map that kind of idea fairly well it presented some challenges i won't you know i'll absolutely admit in like technically like getting it to work well but i think we've landed in a place that that works very well and because as we mentioned before it's just code you can still compose stuff into a startup class if you want um it's just that the biggest i think backlash that we tend to get is when we change the defaults like file new that's and yeah that's where we really um we, the thing that we started doing differently was that, you know, C Sharp gets new features every year. ASP.NET Core gets new features every year. We don't necessarily put them in the templates. We made a conscious change in .NET 6 to start saying, no, we need our new customers, new users to see the new stuff. That's that, otherwise they're never gonna use it. We had yeah. examples of language features that have been in C Sharp for three versions that just weren't being used anywhere because people didn't know they existed. They didn't work very well in Visual Studio because none of the templates use them. So it creates a bit of a feedback loop if you start adopting these features and then things get better. So So what is the end game, I guess, with, with .NET? Because there's there's one thing, you know, to say that we're not looking to sell anything, we just want to grow this. But .NET and the development of .NET is ultimately a money pit where it doesn't necessarily make money directly. It I am assuming it tries to make money indirectly. And the first thing that comes to mind is Azure. Because the, what I see is Microsoft has built this amazing experience of if you're in Visual Studio with C Sharp and you're going to go take your application, just deploy it and, and run it in um, Azure, that experience is excellent. It's the one thing where I think 
you just defeat AWS head-on, which I would assume is the biggest competitor on that field. But would you say from your perspective that you're trying to compete on the cloud? Or how do you see this relationship? Because Microsoft clearly can't just throw money into this problem without expecting to get something back. It's just not a smart decision. And Satya is a super smart guy. Obviously, right. that's not something that would be coming directly down from him, but the team that he has should. So I'm just so curious to. And you don't have to answer this if you can't answer this. No, so I mean, that's absolutely fine. But I can answer yeah. it a certain way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's fair to say that the answer to that question changes depending how far up the org chart you go. Um, just you know, because of the perspective of of why a given thing exists or what its goal is or whatever um, can be different from quarter to quarter. Um, and from, you know, from person to person. Um, personally, my interpretation is that we have some advantages in that, you know, just like Microsoft, in my view, has a bit of an advantage at the moment in terms of big tech. You know, we've seen a whole bunch of turmoil in big tech this year. Um, quite a diverse company in terms of product wise, Microsoft, you know, gets revenue from lots of different things. We're not 100% an ad company or, you know, 80% ad company yeah. or 80% a cloud company or a consumer company or a business software company. We do all types of stuff. And that's, yeah. you know, we're actually traditionally fairly conservative fiscally um, and sort of product wise. And we've got lots of spectacular failures in our past as well as a company, right? And yeah. obviously I don't speak for the company. I'm just like the tiniest possible cog in a company of nearly 200,000 people. Um, but when it comes to .NET, we have a few things that um, you can kind of look at it, different angles you can look at it from. One of the ones that you've that you've mentioned, because it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's no big secret. Like you know, it used to be that we sold Windows licenses and .NET was, probably you know, we still do, but like it used to be that that was the primary market. We'd sell a box, you would buy a box from Dell or whatever, it'd have a Windows server license on it and that's how we would make money. And IS was free, ASP.NET was free, .NET was free, it was part of it. Um, and, and the world has moved on. Now there's a cloud and that's where the competition is for server programming uh, in terms of growth is, is there. So yes, obviously we want .NET to work well in the cloud. We want it to work well in any cloud because we're not going to be competitive if we only work in one cloud. Like we, we know that much, right? Like, so we yeah. can't say .NET is really only great if you run it in Azure. Like that's just not going to fly. So we have to be open as an open source project and as a modern stack, cross-platform stack, that is going to work well everywhere but we need to make sure that we certainly want .NET to run great in azure no great secret right yeah. and so we there's obviously those discussions happen and obviously that type of that aspect of the product planning takes place um but we also have things like well microsoft runs on .NET, right like to a large extent we have a very large first party customer base as we call them and we think a lot about first parties and a lot of the time a lot of the benefit we get out of performance work for example is direct monetary benefit for microsoft because when people internally update to new versions of net they can reduce their core counts they could reduce their cost of goods effectively their cogs yeah. right and so we don't have to sell it to anyone to get that benefit we can just make it better for ourselves and because microsoft is large enough and has large enough services serving so many millions and sometimes billions of people um we get the benefit there so that's great without even having to sell anything um, and then there's also the aspect of, well, we think about .NET mostly when we talk on shows like this and the content that you produce and a lot of the community as modern .NET. We talk about ASP.NET Core and we talk about MAUI. 
wind forms is massive. Like the, the, yeah. the base of customers who are building .NET applications to run on Windows is very large. It's still the very, very large part of the overall .NET pie. And so we get benefit from there, right? You know, investing in .NET now that WinForms and WPF are available on modern .NET benefits that very large customer base as well, as well as obviously the internal stuff that uses that. And so there's lots of, the .NET itself is quite diverse, right? It's not just a JavaScript framework that you use for server-side programming or, you know, whatever it might be. It's a suite, it's a platform of a whole bunch of different things, even if a lot of the focus externally tends to be on one aspect of it. Like at the moment, it's a lot of focus on Maui and a lot of focus on the ASP.NET Core side of things, but there's a lot more to .NET than just, just those parts. So I was watching live with the stream actually here at .NET Conf and the release of .NET 7. And it was a bit of, a, of an interesting experience because I noticed both from me and my chat, hey chat by the way, uh, that um, there was a visible dissatisfaction with the fact that there was so much focus on .NET on Azure and on and that that's not really the problem because I get it somehow you have to sell that but focusing on uh, power apps and no code low code solutions quite a bit very early in the keynote and the question is like who is this for because .NET Conf in my mind is this thing that is celebrating .NET and I didn't quite understand if that really fit there and I don't know if you actually watched this or not sir. The keynote specifically, yeah. yeah. I didn't watch the whole keynote. Yeah. I certainly watched past it. Yeah, it was it was very no code, low code, and power apps heavy. I want to say I don't know, thirty minutes nonstop, and like in the first two hours. So when twenty five percent of a thing that is to celebrate open source and .NET is not about open source and .NET because I I don't know what what are your thoughts on this? I, and think of this as a not as a member of the team, but as a .NET developer who's excited to learn about the future of .NET. Because that's yep. what me and my audience ultimately are. Yep. Yeah, I'm absolutely. I think one of the things they drill into us when we do conference speaking for Microsoft it often is making sure you set expectations correctly. Like the last thing you want to do is set a title for a talk with an abstract that the people then turn up to your talk and you do something completely different because people invest time to come and watch something based on what they think they're going to get out of it. So I totally, it's a totally reasonable question to ask. I, I can't speak directly to any of those things. I wasn't involved in any of the planning or any of that type of stuff. Um, I just showed up for a panel, <laughs> did an architect <laughs> panel um, and had a yeah. fun conversation on that. Um, but I, I would just say that, you know, as you can probably imagine, like anything that um, has money involved where someone has to pay for the hosting of that stuff, um, and organization of it. And it's, it's, it's a fairly large production now. Um, there's always, you know, tension or, you know, competition for content. And, you know, just like I said before, with regards to, you know, certain questions, the, the answers you get to that will change. And the content you'll see in, in various conferences will change from quarter to quarter based on whatever the goals are um of you know of that particular period and the people involved and whatever someone decides okay this time we're going to push x because we think that's important for this quarter or whatever it might be and again i don't know an awful lot about that type of stuff i kind of just accept that some you know that that happens and sometimes it goes further one way than you might have liked it to go another way 
And of course we talk about that type of stuff internally. Um, but you know, I'm not, we, we, I, I know better than to kind of air dirty laundry out in the, in the world. But the reality is, yeah, like we talk about stuff, we debate it. Um, I, that, that particular issue, I'm not, you know, super aware of whether that's being talked about or not, but I think it's totally reasonable that we need to be aware of how, what people are expecting from certain conferences, you know, whether it's .NET Conf or Build or Ignite or any of the conferences that have gone through, uh, you know, that we have for different audience types, and then make sure we do our best to, to, um, you know, deliver content that those folks expect. I will say that we take that sort of feedback seriously. In fact, as far as I've seen, the organizers of any of those conferences, whether it's .NET Conf or Ignite or Build or PDC before that or Mix or whatever it was, they really look at the feedback. So like, you know, they're asking for, so there's always surveys for every session that you watch typically at those things. Um, and there's always sentiment analysis done afterwards, especially in this online age where we've got, we're, you know, we're going for online views a lot of the time. We're looking at the chat. Uh, we're looking at the social media uh, feedback and we're doing sentiment analysis and they care about it a lot. And so okay. if that's, if that's um, you know, the perception or the feedback that a lot of people have, it will be seen. Yeah. Um, and then that'll be rolled into the planning for the next one. So, Okay, that, that, that is good because it did kind of feel out of place. I don't want to stand too much on that point, but, it, you know, it's something you can have, but you can have it like three, four hours in. I don't think it should be like an hour in the celebration of this amazing framework we're all using, but I digress. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this whole yearly release thing? Because we're in a bit of a situation where now .NET is released yearly and C Sharp is released yearly. Mm -hmm. And what I see happening is that really we're in a two-year release where one year is just, let's just deliver this, see how it's used and then adapt. And then it's, it's really in a place where it can be used. And I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, when minimal APIs launched, like you said, they, they were missing a few crucial features. I think the biggest one was filters for me. That, that's what I had to hack my way around and try to inject it into the, the pipeline because I, I was using them actually. Um, and the other thing on the C-sharp side of things is that many features keep getting pushed to the next release. To give you an example on that, the field keyword was supposed to be in C-sharp 9, I want to say? And it went to 10, oh, sorry. It was supposed to be in 10. It didn't make it 10, didn't make it 11. And now it's supposed to be in 12. So what do you think about this yearly release? And is it adding pressure to both teams to just deliver? And I don't even want to touch on Maui because Maui is not my thing, but this was also delayed. And many people argue it shouldn't even be launched when it launched. So uh, I want to know your thoughts on this. Yeah. the. The annual thing, I mean, I think all up moving to a consistent release schedule was the best sort of trade-off that we could make. Like, you know, that wasn't what we had in the beginning of .NET Core. We were doing point releases. We thought we might end up doing like super recent, you know, super frequent point releases. We got, and then with the whole LTS and non-LTS thing was sort of under development at that point as well. Like, you know, 1.1 was LTS and 2.1 was LTS and 2.2 wasn't. and it, it became very difficult for people to understand what was supported and what wasn't and what the timeframes were. And so we kind of got to a point when we were doing uh, 3.1 and planning for the releases after that, that we, we decided we needed to do something that was more consistent. Um, it doesn't mean though that 
the entire stack, um, the entire product, every little thing inside of it is always going to be you know, squared away completely. Um, I think just like any software, we're always going to have you know, during planning, we, our goal is to build a, you know, a, a complete product feature or whatever it might be, like minimal. And then you get a certain amount of way through and you realize, you know, we're just not going to be able to get over the finish line with what we might have thought was the MVP when we started, you know, the minimal viable product. Um, I think, and minimal might, might be a case of that where some folks will go, look, it's just not usable without filters. Um, I think, and for them, that may be true. I think there are certainly cases where you can use it without filters, um, but it is limiting, you know, for sure. Uh, with, with C Sharp, um, I know the language design folks um, obviously are very careful with regards to introducing features in the language. And they have to think about things that I can't even fathom, like the types of uh, you know, computer science language design issues that I have no clue about. But you know, when you ask them, why haven't you just done this? And they give you a lecture on you know, all these types of things that I've never even heard of. It's like, okay, I get it. You know what you're doing. <laughs> um, yeah, the field one in particular, in fact, someone just said something about that one to me yesterday. It was, um, it's an interesting one because it basically introduces a new reserve keyword, which is by definition a breaking change. Yep. And that's something that they don't take very lightly in the language. In fact, there's very few breaking changes that make it into the compiler because it becomes a hard stop on someone's ability to move to a new version of something um, when it's the language, the compiler itself is saying, no, you can't do this anymore in the language. Um, and so again, it's, it's a set of trade-offs and we make that trade-off differently in different parts of the stack. You, you know, people will realize and have noticed that we are more lenient or we may make more breaking changes higher up in the stack than we would do in lower parts of the stack that are shared across different things. Just because the impact of those breaking changes gets larger, the lower down the stack you use them. And the impact meaning it affects more people. It's more code that, that is impacted out in the world. Um, and so we have to make that decision on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I, I'll say there's no intent for the yearly cycle to actually be a two-year cycle. It really is, you know, we're trying to develop, deliver value every year. And I know you've done, you know, produce content about LTS versus STS or current as it was called at the time. Yeah. Um, and we would love for customers to, to stay current, like to be using the most recent version um, and get all the benefits of doing so. And we obviously really want as many customers using our pre-release versions as possible as well, so that we can find issues, which are inevitably gonna happen um, as soon as we possibly can. Um, we also do monthly servicing, which I'm not sure I get yet that everyone knows. Like, you know, there is a new yeah. version every single month and you should be installing it every single yeah. month uh, to, 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 to not only, you know, break things that are, sorry, to fix things that are broken, but to like fix security vulnerabilities. We do multiple security releases every year um, and to remain supported for the customers who care about official Microsoft support, you have to be running on a supported version. And so yeah. the first step is make sure you're running on a supported version, install the patches. Um, but I know that that's a culture change for a lot of places, you know, to move to a culture where you are constantly updating the platform is not something that they've had to do. So. Yeah, that, that's the one thing I covered in that video. That's like, everyone thinks they're LTS because they're in like 6.0.100. I'm like, yeah, that is not supported. You are out of support because you haven't yeah. installed the latest version. Yeah. Only that is supported. So, you know, if you don't update your Docker images. And at that point, if you are going to go through that, 
from what I've seen, it's extremely easy to go from six to seven. And it was fairly easy. I think the big jump was when three was released and then five also had some changes, but then five to six, yep. six to seven, piece of cake. And now I'm running .NET 8 Alpha and have content coming out of that. And I found some interesting stuff there. Um, and even that was, you know, you can use that. So, yeah. okay. It's nice to hear, you know, the phrasing was a bit interesting. Oh, well, I think you use the current naming, but then you change to STS, but you encourage people that use LTS to move to STS as they're being released and have this culture of as things are coming out, things are coming out, you want to keep moving forward and use the latest thing. We would love that in an ideal world, right? But we we have an LTS because we know that's not reality for a lot of people. Yeah. It, it, that trade-off that doesn't work for them. Everything we do is cost. It is ultimately zero sum, right? It's as reductionist as that may seem. It's like, well, yeah, like when it comes to you're employing people or you're using a finite amount of time and a finite amount of fingers on keyboards to do things, um, it, you, it, you sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, or you're not going to make that trade-off. Or you're, you're delivering software in such a way that a one-year cycle just isn't feasible. And we know that, that for some customers, a three-year cycle, uh, they argue, is not feasible for them. And that's, and, and you know, we understand that. And then there are, there are, we hear it, I should say, um, and there are still offerings available for people like that. And like .NET Framework on Windows is supported according to the Windows support lifecycle, which is 10 plus 10 years, um, which is far longer than most software platforms offer support for these yeah. days um and that's i mean and that but that's been a change in the industry as well right as the industry has grown and modernized over the last decade or so we've seen the advent of of things moving a lot more quickly um as things get more complex especially in the connected world right you know security is a huge one and secure supply chain has been a very hot topic this last year or so and will continue to be because it's nowhere near solved yet and i'm sure we'll probably get far more complicated before we make real inroads into it, but we care a lot about that as well. And so getting people to stay current is kind of like step one in in, in secure supply chain talk. So I wish to, I could make it easy. To, to move to STS. And I mean, if no. STS works for you, I would encourage I would okay. encourage you That's, to consider it. Okay. We're gonna clip this and just send it to everyone. <laughs> okay, and, LTS and then is great. And then <laughs> And then for the million dollar question, because I know we said this is supposed to be an hour, but I don't know how, how long you can stay. Uh, yeah. But I just noticed we're like 52 minutes in. Um, is .NET 11 times faster than Node? Depends on how you measure it. <laughs> how, how, how would you measure it in a way that it is meaningful? So this is why, the, and then, yeah, it's, it, this is a good question. Um, that that question has different answers depending on who you ask and this is why benchmarks are always debated um the advantage the, the the thing i like about the tech and power benchmarks in particular which um you know i was involved very early on in the the the, the efforts to get .NET into for us to care about tech and power and the efforts to get .NET in there looking well um is that there are an open set of benchmarks it's a it's there are no owners you know, in reality of any of the tests, it's a it's one repo with all the benchmarks from every language. There's a set of definitions um, and guidance, and then the enforcement of that is up to the community. Um, and so if you have a problem with any implementation, you log an issue um, yeah. and then it gets debated. And, you know, ultimately the, the, the tech and power 
repo owners can decide at any point to change the rules, clarify the rules, or to remove a benchmark, um, which I don't think has happened much. Typically, usually what happens if, if there's something really egregious, uh, the community will log an issue and then you know it'll, it'll get fixed uh, by someone. But when it comes to things like you know performance claims, there's always this is where it always gets interesting, right? Is that once you've got a set of numbers which are, exist in some definition of a bunch of frameworks, how you then represent those numbers or use those numbers as part of a message is different to the to the benchmarks themselves. And in the case of that you're referring to with like oh you know .NET is 11 times faster than the Node, that is some messaging that yeah we've seen being used in some of our marketing material, um, which I can say that, you know, internally, there's a few of us who have committed to to try and do better with regards to producing better content that isn't so sensationalist, I guess. Um, yeah. uh, there are certainly situations where, you know, it is it absolutely is 11 times faster, but the, the benchmarks where that shows up are ones that are, one might argue, are benchmarks for benchmarks sake or their benchmarks explicitly designed to exercise a very core component of the stack um, in order to represent a low watermark, right? Like you, know, you will never be faster than this because the framework itself, is, it takes this long to do it. And it isn't, you know, and the, the, the insinuation is that it's not fair to claim these things. And so I can tell you that we're, we're working on right now, um, trying to come up with a, a more representative set for the use of, or for these more sort of widespread marketing type of messages yeah. where the nuance is lost. You know, you're not looking at code side by side, you're just looking at a bunch of numbers. Um, and so for example, it would make more sense in my mind, and this is what we're working towards, to compare like a minimal API returning JSON using the intrinsic JSON serialization. You know, you can use a source generator, that's fine. That's very mainstream, all the rest of it. Um, and, and, and endpoint routing compared to Go using Jin, which is like a very you know, popular yeah. uh, routing framework and app framework and Express on Node, right? And that and would be, API, I think, yeah, 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 JSON returning API. I think Tech and Power has a JSON benchmark, which is basically just returns hello world object. Yeah. They have a bunch of rules. You have to allocate the object every request, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but beyond that, like anything goes, right? And it's up to the framework to decide what, what, they, what they submit and they most of the entries take are influenced by each other so typically the way these things go is that there'll be an entry that is you know does things a certain way and then other frameworks go oh oh okay i hadn't thought of like writing the code that way or utilizing this uh um technique in order to get better performance in this particular benchmark so then they go and do that as well um and the, i think the one that was very influential in tech and power early on was the netty benchmark yeah and so netty for folks who don't know is a server technology on java um it's not part of the java enterprise library or anything it's just a you know it's just a library but it you know it's written in java and you consume it in java applications and there are lots of app stacks that people use that use netty as the server and the netty json implementation and plain text implementation was very low level like they were they they were really um no, it doesn't look anything like an MVC app or a minimal app or anything. It's it's not a socket server, right? Yeah. But it was very much, it looks a bit like low-level WCF, like it's that kind of thing. But then they were using a bunch of very interesting primitives to get a lot of performance um, out of it. And then that influenced us and a bunch of other frameworks. And now, you know, fast forward eight years, 
and you see people getting that type of performance from stuff that looks like Express. Yeah. And that's the journey that these types of benchmarks allow to take place. Um, because often, you know, without that type of competition going on and that type of influence going on in that type of community arena, um, you may not get that type of uh, that type of progress. So I totally, you know, acknowledged and heard on the marketing sort of the way that this messaging happens, and we're working to address that. Um, but on the benchmarks themselves, I think they've been fantastic for the product. They've been fantastic for the community, um, and we continue to use them to kind of drive performance culture. And we've seen so much evidence from customers from release to release that even though the benchmarks in Tech and Power may seem very simplistic, then the most complicated one, which is called Fortunes, basically reads from you know 20 rows from a database, does some processing, and then renders HTML. Why even that can seem really simplistic. Um, the, the performance improvements that people have gotten in their actual applications as they move from .NET Core 3 to .NET 5 to .NET 6 to .NET 7, you know, the meme of they post a graph and they're like, pick the point where we updated to .NET 6. That stuff didn't happen because we had their app in the lab. It happened because we have the benchmarks in Tech Empower and we have micro benchmarks in the runtime repository and we improve those things. And then that trickles, effectively trickles up <laughs> into people's applications. So, so let me let me try then to, to understand something because obviously that, that 10 or 11 times thing has stayed for quite a long time, but this is just text through Kestrel, it doesn't really compare. Um, obviously with the equivalent thing from Node, but the, or whatever, I think it's like Java applets are, are there as well. And there's a bunch of other yeah. stuff. I think the, the one thing is that not everyone that is on that list has a full-time, highly paid job to work on this and optimize them, let alone being the people who actually make the thing. Because like you said, you were involved in this for a long time. Um, so, so, you know, you have an edge because obviously it's not necessarily idiomatic C sharp. Um, I mean, you would write, but the, the value used is not really the value that means something. And the problem is that benchmark is so optimized. I can't see how it can get better over time, which is why we didn't see a 20 times faster in .NET 7. You know, that value actually stayed the same from what I've seen or slightly increased. Oh, I think you're referring to the plain text benchmark the specifically. The plain text benchmark, yeah. yeah, yeah. Plain text it's just platform. so optimized. It's so hard to get it faster. And I think that's the one that's used to say 11 million requests per second or whatever that is. I can't quite remember the exact value, yeah, I, but, I don't know. but I it's something stupid. I can't even... It probably but, is that one. Yeah, but 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 my, my thought process and my... I, I guess... The way I see this is, is Microsoft and I guess .NET, the whole team is trying to to use that as a bit of a, like, like my videos have clickbait titles. And even though they're partially true, because, you know, when I say the electrical concept that keeps your applications alive, when yeah. I talk about the circuit breaker, breaker. yeah, I'm, it's, there is truth to what I'm saying. And as long as there's truth, it's not wrong. But then if you have like a, a minimal API calling a database, and then you compare that to another framework with idiomatic code in both cases, it's not so far faster. In some cases, it could be slower. Is that so? Or do you think that the way this works, people will see that and say, oh, I have all my business in, in Java. I'm going to now move in C-sharp because it's 11 times faster 
than uh, Java applet or, you know, what's the exact value. I want to understand the reasoning. Is, is it just to draw the headline and get someone use it? Or because to me, the fact that console application in C Sharp is literally you have an empty file and you write. And when people see that, when I make a video that's not just for C Sharp developers, but for anyone, they're like, what in the scripting thing is is that C sharp? Last time I checked, I had five, five time like times nesting to even start coding. Yeah. So what happened? To me, that's more exciting. But you can communicate it with. It only takes one line of code. You have a, a console. Uh, mm. Dot dot. Oh, and we did work. that as well. But yeah, but it didn't really work, did it? Because who cares? You know, <laughs> Python, Python's been doing that for Python, who's been doing that for years. Yeah. I can't speak to the, the to that specific slide. I didn't build that slide. I didn't build that marketing page. Um, we've I can say we've, we, when they've asked for numbers, I, we've given them numbers and said, you know, this is the one that you should use. Yeah. And then sometimes that's not the one that gets used. They use a, a different one. Um, you know, we'll give them that feedback and whatever. But ultimately, you know, the people writing the benchmarks aren't the ones that ultimately are always putting it on the slide or whatnot. Um, but as I said before, like that feedback was heard and I, you know, I tend to agree with it. It's not, you know, comparing it in that fashion um, might look good with a dial graphic and all that type of stuff. And we see that everywhere. Um, it's certainly not only in our industry where that type of stuff is done. You can look at the car industry for, oh, you know, plenty of terrible examples of that type of stuff as well. Um, but, you know, we've, we've totally heard on that and we've, you know, from us on the, from the folks who actually do write the benchmarks, we've committed to producing better content um, so that hopefully things like, you know, that particular example don't happen again um, with the plain text one. The plain text one is by far the most, is the one that most people go, oh, well, that's just pointless. And it's like, yeah. no, it exists for a reason. The plain text one, we've driven a lot of amazing improvements through the plain text platform benchmark. Um, and to your point about not being able to optimize, optimize it further, I would encourage you to change your lens of thinking. So. It's not perhaps, perhaps we can't get more performance out of it, but perhaps we can make the code better so that the code you have to write to get to that level of performance doesn't look as crazy in, you know, release 10 as it did in release three. And we've certainly seen that like early on in the platform benchmarks, um, the platform is a category in tech and power. There are different yeah. like you know, there's platform, there's micro and there's, and there's full in terms yeah. of framework level. Um, platform is like the rawest is like, yeah, like you're, you're testing the platform, the server directly kind of thing. Um, and you're not using an ORM or you're not using a routing framework or you're not using whatever. Right. And so plain text platform is literally returning. Hello world. You can cache the hello world bytes. You don't have to allocate a string every time. Like it's all explicitly called out because the purpose of that test is to test the HTTP server. How fast can the platform speak HTTP? And so everything else is just going to slow down your result on that. So you optimize everything else away so that you're just focusing on handling HTTP requests. And then they go even further by saying a given socket will send 16 requests sequentially before it expects to get a response. And that's called HTTP pipelining, yeah. which no browser does, but you can do that from HTTP client. It's within spec to do that in HTTP. And that's what this benchmark is. The only benchmark on Tech and Power that does pipelining. And again, it's specifically because that that test is designed to test the HTTP um, handling capability of your server. Um, and so, yeah, comparing, you know, one language to another in that space, you might think, oh, you know, it's not fair to say that that means the whole stack 
is better than the other stack. You know, absolutely. That that benchmark is specifically designed to do one thing. But it's kind of amazing looking back at the evolution of the implementations of that benchmark, um, not just at .NET, like all of them. And to see, as I said before, how frameworks have appeared that are very simple looking and like you can, you can get amazing levels of performance uh, by just having something that looks like you're doing routing, it looks like a standard delegate, and but it's so well optimized that you can do that type of stuff. So um, yeah, as I said, you know, heard we, we continue to work on these things. Um, one thing that we're really keen on for .NET 8 early on is we're looking at native AOT um, and further optimizations in ASP.NET Core stack around memory use and stuff like that to just you know keep really pushing on uh, you know those the quadrant the, the, the quadrant of metrics that we tend to look at like startup time. A working set or memory use, um, throughput, and uh, disk size. You know how much, how big is your application after you publish it? Um, those are very traditionally a trade-off. Mm -hmm. Like you, you can't get all four, especially yeah. uh, a lot of the time with each frameworks. And so finding that optimum kind of set of defaults, and then figuring out the set of dials that you can set, um, and the separate APIs that you can use to to lean more to one of those metrics or two of them, and like give a little bit away in some of the other. We continue to push on those things on each release. Uh, yeah, so. So, and again, we're over the uh, like the time we originally had set for this. So, if you need to go, please let me know. Um, but I'm super curious to know then what is what is the next big thing for .NET? You know, with nine, uh, eight and then nine coming up, what's the one thing that you're excited about? Ooh, one thing. There's two big things I'm excited about that I'm working closely with. There are other things know. that I've... So for .NET 8 planning, there's a, two areas at the moment I'm involved in. One is this, uh, basically, let's make let's make native AOT work for ASP.NET Core apps. So today, native AOT was productized in .NET 7. It used to be called Core RT, and it was a, in the Runtime Labs repo. Um, it's now part of, of the main .NET product, um, and it's used, it's supported in console applications only in .NET 7. So like, you know, if you try and use it with ASP.NET Core, you might be able to get it to work. You'll get a wall of warnings whenever you try and publish with this setting set and your app will probably break. Well, can um, I stop you there? Just, just yeah. very quickly. I don't know if you've seen this this tweet or this video, but uh, AWS has heavily invested in, in oh, this. Yeah. And, and obviously video. in the repo, they, they, have, your video. they have so many issues and, and they do this mob um, <laughs> upvoting thing, which is so funny, which is when someone needs something, they make an issue and then I guess they publish it into an internal chime or whatever they okay. use and then everyone just uploads yeah. it because they all have like these upvotes but you can actually build a system with native AOT now and you can eliminate cold starts from well AWS Lambda so yeah. that's one thing I'd really like to see from Azure as well because cold starts are this pain in the ass that it really solves for like you know from native AOT from what I've seen yes if you can get an API to work with it it's gonna be amazing but the JIT is not that bad. You're going to get similar performance. And yeah, you're going to eliminate some of that start, but that's where I'm going to see the biggest benefit. But in any case, yes, you, you can actually use it now to a reasonable degree. Uh, but, but please. Is, yeah. yeah, what you can get working is a different question from what's officially supported from a product point yeah. of view. Um, and you know, some people care more about that than others. Um, so... 
yeah, like in .NET 7, as I said, native AOT became an officially supported option. There are docs for it. You can set it up in your console app. And then obviously it all comes down to what you write. Like what, what dependencies do you pull in and what code do you write as to whether it's going to work or not? Because as you've you know, talked about before, um, when you go native AOT, some stuff's just off the table. It just doesn't work anymore. There is no JIT when you do native AOT. So you cannot emit code that gets compiled at runtime anymore. Uh, they do have an, an expression interpreter. So you can still do expression tree based com um, compilation. It's just that it's not actually compiling it. It's just gonna uh, run it under an interpreter at, uh, at runtime. Um, but anyway, getting in .NET 8, making native AOT at least usable for a subset of ASP.NET Core applications. And that subset that we're focusing on is APIs, as you can probably imagine, uh, yes. for all the reasons that you're alluding to with regards to startup time and cloud workloads and containers and all that type of stuff. And so we have a, we're going through a couple of stages and stage one is kind of like, hello world, like make sure that you can get an ASP.NET Core app with a minimal API that returns some object that gets serialized to JSON. Make sure you can get that very easily, like file new, new API application, tick the box that says, I want native AOT. You get a development experience that keeps you within the guardrails, tells you if you do something that you can't that you can't do. And if you publish that, it is AOT, right? And it is within some performance target, within some size on disk target, within some size working set target. Like that's our stage one. And we want to get to that very early in the preview cycle for, for .NET 8 so we can get feedback. Stage two is, right, let's grow this API up to do something real, right? And in this stage, if you haven't seen it, I have a repo called Trimmed To Do on GitHub. Um, and that you can think of that is basically our stage two app. It's a CRUD style API that accepts, you know, um, JSON over the wire, returns JSON, it does validation, it has configuration. Um, obviously it's using all the ASP.NET Core features like the, it does auth, which adds a whole other layer of complexity. So, you know, it does JOT token authentication. Yeah. Um, it does. It needs to be observable, so we need to have OTEL support, open telemetry support, or observability. Logging needs to work. Diagnostic source needs to work. You know, .NET event pipe, .NET monitor, like all that stuff that you're going to want to work use in a real app running in the cloud, um, or in production. All that stuff has to work. And so that that's a big jump from stage one. <laughs> yeah. So like getting from stage one to stage two might take more than one extra preview. It might be a few previews, um, but that's kind of our our goal. And then the stages beyond that are like okay then we're on a journey at that point, right? Like it's like, once we can get to the point of like a stage two app is native AOTable, we think you can then reasonably expect people to say, well, in the larger scheme of a complicated microservices style architecture application, I choose, I, you know, I want the benefits of native AOT here, here, and here. But for these other ones, I don't necessarily need that trade-off, right? Because I can't use all these libraries that don't support it or whatever it is, but I'm, it's worth doing for these areas. Um, that's where we, I think, this is the target for .NET 8. And then beyond that, we keep going. Like, you know, we learn, we build the muscle, we understand how to build APIs, build source generators, all that type of stuff, build a development experience that lets us build more and more functionality that works on the native AOT. And then we keep going based on customer feedback and the usual kind of market stuff. It's like, okay, where's the next place to take this support to? Obviously, the .NET library ecosystem is a huge, being nuget.org is a huge base of functionality that has to come on this journey as well. Um, and that has a 20 year pedigree behind it that didn't have to think about this, this. Yeah. And it's, you know, as I said, there are limitations. And so this isn't gonna be install.NET 8 and everything is native AOTable. Like, you know, just, just get rid of that idea yeah. right now, even.NET 9 or.NET 10. This is an option 
that for certain types of applications or in certain types of scenarios where you want to make a particular trade-off, that this makes sense. And that over time, we expect more libraries will do the work required um, for these types of applications, if the libraries are fit for that type of application in the first place, um, to make it so that you can use it. What is that ratio? I don't know. Like, is it 90-10, 80-20, 50-50 eventually? I don't know. Uh, that's something that we'll that we'll all we will all learn together as we you know as, as .NET kind of ventures into this new space. And then the other one that was one. I and the was other about one to say you, you only talked about one. That was only one. The next one is Razor. Okay. Um, so we're having a really good look at the sort of SPA framework landscape at the moment. For those of us who have been in web programming a long time, it, it's like you know, it's like the "What year is it?" meme is coming up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Server-side rendering is like cool again and being touted as the next week. And we're looking at this and I'm like, so in 2005, when we released MS Ajax and the update panel was a thing, it's like, oh, that was 17 years ago. And like literally the technology and the way they're doing things under the covers is virtually identical. It, it just looks more around. modern. Like it's, yeah. you know, they're not making some of the same mistakes. Yeah, it all goes round. And it's and the same argument make... with, uh, sorry, like people talk about gRPC, like that's the best thing since like sliced yeah. bread. We had that. It could do more. It's just that the backing technology and the interop stuff around it wasn't good enough. But the core right. thing, like, it just comes around. And now it's amazing because G doesn't stand for Google. It stands for gRPC, like, whatever. Right. And yeah, and it had HTTP2 as a base, right? So yeah. you have this. Yeah, so it, you're exactly right. And that's how I feel about this latest web framework evolution is that, yes, We've been trying to do this in some form ever since Ajax. Like ever since we realized that we could do stuff in the client, there has been some attempt to try and build that into the framework um, in a progressively enhanced way. Like all the, all the terms from the late 2000s are coming back. It's wonderful. Um, uh, you know, during the height of the browser wars. Um, but do it well now because we've, we've, we've learned so much. The browsers are so much more capable now um, and, you know, I think people's tolerance for just the mess that can result when building web applications that way, it's just so difficult to do it manually. Like we were literally doing that manually back with jQuery and a web forms app where you would, you know, render the stuff from the server, but you knew there would be some jQuery that was going to run immediately. So you would also render like a script block with an array in it that had the same data as you were just bound to on the server. So then the jQuery could pick up that data without having to do a fetch or an Ajax request. Like yeah. All that stuff was manual back then. And now the frameworks are making that stuff automatic. They just become part of the, the, the primitives of the application framework. So we've got some very early prototypes and some basically very, like literally a meeting this morning um, where we're talking about, great, what, how do we make Razor support this stuff as well? Um, and take all the great stuff that we've built in Razor for Blazor, for Blazor Server, for Blazor WebAssembly, for Blazor Hybrid, um, and build kind of the ultimate, you know, web rendering framework on Razor components. And so it's really early days. I don't know how far we're going to get in the early previews, but um, I'm really excited by what we're seeing there and what we've gotten out of the early prototypes. Um, and I'm really looking forward to thinking about like how we can differentiate, like, you know, copying or, you know, you're doing doing the same things that are obvious, like, oh, we've got all the tech. It's evident now that there's a market uh, demand for it. People are excited about it. 
we can build that stuff with our eyes closed. That's fine. Let's do that. I'm, I'm interested about what we can do beyond that. Now that we can run .NET in the client with WebAssembly, uh, but we don't have to make the whole app WebAssembly. We can do it on demand. We can do really clever things. Like I'm really excited to see where where we go with that. So, well, that's that's super exciting. I, I, yeah. I personally really really like the whole Razor stuff. Uh, and you know, uh, sort of I was surprised at the beginning why components are dot Razor for for Blazor. But I'm like, oh, if they didn't do that, then. It means it's future-proof. It can be used in other things as well. So they might have a plan. So like, I'm seriously curious. You want the truth? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. <laughs> I was also, my first job at Microsoft was the Razor tooling program manager. So the very first things I did was like, let's build the Razor editor. Before there was a CSHTML editor, we had an ASPX editor. We had to build the editor for it, right? And it, it created a whole bunch of challenges because of how we had, the, how Visual Studio editor technology worked in 2010. Um, so when it came to doing Razor Blazor and we had this new dialect of Razor, it was still Razor, but it compiled to something differently. Like it, it was, it, it and it had different primitives, right? Um, it was the same syntax, but you were building a different thing with it. Yeah. Okay. Um, we had always wanted to support a different file extension. Like CSHTML was okay at the time, but we always like, why didn't we just call it dot Razor? Like, why wasn't it dot RZR or dot Razor file? And, but we had a challenge, which was, okay, now we've got these two Razor dialects. How do we know if a .html file is a component or a view? Like, how are we supposed to know it without first looking at it? Yeah. So the compiler would have to like peek inside it and figure out which it is so that the editor could be bootstrapped with the right IntelliSense. And, all that. and so it was just, it was like, well, we could do a property in the in the project file that says this folder is Razor components and this folder is, that's what we did in the first previews. Yeah. And then we realized, no, let's just use, let's use the file extension. Let's say, hey, .razor can just be components and .cshtml can be Razor views. And we solved it that way. And then it was really Steve's, um, you know, sort of genius that made Razor components as a technology decoupled from everything else. Like a Razor component, once it's compiled, if you look at it in ILSpy, depends on almost nothing. Like it has one method on it by default. It's like build render tree, it gets passed in a render tree builder and it just says like add string add attribute and it just like passes everything as a literal and then where you wrote code it's just your code that's just in there like it's no shim it goes through or anything it's like really thin and then the complexity is on the rendering so then you build a renderer and there's a web assembly renderer and a server renderer and then that's where the thing that takes the render tree and does stuff but that means it's super adaptable so that's why we have blazer running in maui and we had like that blutter I don't know if you remember that one, Blutter, which was Blazor. I, I, I think it was, a, I saw a demo. Yeah, oh, I think Steve like, demoed it in yeah, see. And then there was yeah. like a Blazor React where he had like Blazor React Native components. Yeah, I, <laughs> All, I, you can do crazy stuff with it. So, every time, because yeah. he, uh, he demoed Blazor as well in the same context, which is, wait, .NET can do that. I think that was the title. And right. ever since that, every time he demos something like this, he has a disclaimer saying, this might not become an actual product, but after Blazor, I kind of hope some of those do become actual products. <laughs> you know, it's cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, that's so cool to hear. That's super exciting. I'm uh, the native AOT stuff. I'm oh, I'm so pumped about that. And it's great yeah, to hear so because it, so much if content folks are to interested. Make. Yeah, like I, like I said, we want to we want to make progress on that fairly early in .NET eight. 
um, because it's an area where we really need to get it into customers' hands to get a sense of whether we're on the right track. And yeah. the development experience is gonna be very important. We don't wanna have something where it's just too hard to use because everything you do when you're in Visual Studio or whatever, then you just get runtime crashes after you've published it. Like we need to make sure the end-to-end -end experience is cohesive so that you have those guardrails, you have that guidance from the very start, like when you're in the editor and you're typing code. And I think we're in a good place. Like we've got a, I think we've got it mapped out pretty well, but you know, it's going to take time. So if you're interested in that stuff, like, you know, like always, you know, watch GitHub, you'll yeah. see more and more stuff start to happen in the next month. Uh, my trim to do repo is a, is, is it might be interesting to folks to look at, you know, this, you know, from hello world through to a, to a full API application with auth, that one doesn't work with native AOT right now. Like that's yeah. the goal, right? Is to get that to work, but the hello world does. And, and I've got a table there and a benchmarks.net project that shows you those trade-offs. So you can see, oh, if I publish hello world with all the knobs turned on, I can get a console app to be under one megabyte. Yeah. and a web application to be like 10 megabytes. Oh, but as soon as I do this or I publish it as trimmed instead of native AOT or you know, trimmed, you know, uh, compressed or whatever it might be, or I add ready to run because I want the startup time to be faster, then, oh yeah, it got much faster, but now the app is two and a half times bigger. Like these are the trade-offs that we're working on, yeah. um, but it's good to see them visualized uh, to set, you, set, set, set yourself a baseline. And then also hopefully to be um, impressed at the progress we make during .NET 8. That's my hope is that like, this is our baseline where we are now. And then as we go through the previews, we just keep, you know, those numbers keep getting slower or uh, slower, smaller uh, and faster. Um, and we just make stuff better as we go along, so. Considering that the JIT is so optimized in some areas anyway, is, yeah. the, is the goal to have native AOT perform on, obviously we don't expect any degradation, hopefully, fingers crossed, do you expect it to perform on par with the current yes. run optimized JIT performance? So it's not about it being faster, it's about it being there in in completion and you can run it anywhere. You compile it for it. Like everything, it's nuanced. Like it's it's it, I could just say, yes, we want it to be better all the time. Um, and that's easy to say and, and it's understandable, but like this stuff is complex, right? But yeah. I do know that like the JIT now, we rewrote the JIT like as part of .NET Core in the beginning, the Ryu JIT, you know, yeah. and it's the same code generation technology is used in both, right? In native AOT and in and in in Core CLR JIT today. But they're you know they're different trade-offs, um, and so we we need native AOT to be within a margin, like it needs to be close enough. It can't be it can't be so much slower in throughput that no one's going to choose it even if the file size is 15% of the other one or the startup time is 10 times quicker. I don't think anyone's going to want to give up that kind of throughput. So it has to be within the ballpark. What, How big that ballpark is, is part of building the product. Like is part of doing previews and getting feedback is um, you know, seeing how far do we have to go. I, I'm confident that we can make all the progress that we need to. It's just, we don't know how far we have to go on any of those things. But broadly speaking, it's no, you shouldn't have to give up any runtime performance. Okay. Okay, that's good right. to hear. Really good to hear. Um, I guess I'm just gonna hit you with a few questions before we wrap. Yeah, let's, let's do some questions to finish up. Let's so, do that. So, so a bit of a rapid fire thing. Uh, favorite language, others, um, favorite programming language that is not C Sharp? SQL. SQL? Yeah, and, that surprised everyone, doesn't it? And and favorite actual language? No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, SQL is. No, and I'd you say can that do just some because... pretty complex stuff. I've seen some CTEs. I think it's called CTEs. That, yeah. Like you can properly do stuff. 
Yeah, and I don't even mean like CTEs, like cons consumer table expressions, whatever I they're called in SQL. Really I, I cut my teeth on Oracle. So in right. my, my very early days as a developer doing ASP, um, my backend was Oracle. And so I learned PL SQL and .NET sort of tying it together. Right. Um, and so, you know, I'm an, I've been doing that type of app development for over 20 years. And so when I think about writing stuff, I think about accessing data, I think about it in terms of SQL. Um, I don't tend to think about it in terms of link and, and those type of things or ORMs. I use them for convenience, but I, I think about that. So like a favorite, you know, what it means, different things to different people. But, um, you know, I like JavaScript. I like CSS. I did a lot of front end back in the day. I was like a front end guy on our team back in the 2000s. So I was doing all the CSS and cross browser mm -hmm. crap and a lot of jQuery and JavaScript. I loved JavaScript back in those days. Um, but yeah, so I, if, I say SQL first because so if you were to use uh, to make an application, like an actual application for a product, would you use, you know, something like Dapper or EF Core? Because if you like SQL uh, and you're depends. good at it. So it, like, it's funny, like the trim to do repo I talked about, I have all three. So I have ADO.NET raw with a micro ORM that I just like code in there. I have Dapper and I have EF Core. And just so I can compare and understand the impact of all of them. For my own apps internally that I, you know, I, I have apps that I build and I run internally that are used by other people at Microsoft. Um, I haven't got any that talk to a database. I have some that talk to uh, Azure Data Analytics, okay. um, like Acusto. And so it yeah. uses a SQL-like syntax, but it's actually all web under the covers. Um, and I use Blazor Server for that. And it's been great. It's very, very productive for that type of application development. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, one feature that you hope makes it into C Sharp 11, uh, 12. Discriminated unions. Don't yes. even have to think about that one. Okay. Unions by far is what I want. Do you think they're going to make it in? I don't know. There's, oh. I, there's, a, there's a working group for it. We have folks from Minimal API's team in there on that group uh, pushing and advocating for it. They're using my... You know, I put together like a straw man example of pseudocode of what a minimal API that uses DUs, um, implicit DUs, I mean, They're not ones that you declare. I mean, ones where the compiler looks at your method, looks that you return three different types, and then just builds you a, a, a discriminated union type on the fly yeah. as part of the compile step. And then you don't have to put it in the return type. You can just put async and it just does all the rest of it for you. That's what I want. And then minimal APIs would leverage that by the, then your delegate would have that signature. It would return three different things and we know what they are so we can do all the code generation and stuff. That's the use case that I want it for. There are obviously other use cases for DUs as well. Um, they're a little bit like value tuples on steroids, right? Like it's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the use I want them for. So. It, it's, it's value tuples on steroids, but you don't have to return any baggage if you don't need it, exactly. which is how I, I, I use them. And if you could, obviously there are species that we're talking, you know, discriminated unions is a proposal. It might make it into C sharp 12 or 13, who knows, but it's very likely it will make it. What's one feature you've seen in another language that you wish C sharp had or, or has in the future of anything? And it can be experience oh, I, I, as well. So for, to give you an yeah, idea, okay. uh, you know, the fact that Python, all you need to do is to do a, a hello world is just print. And it prints without having any boilerplate the same way as c-sharp now like what would that look like yeah um i'm gonna talk about things i know i know nothing about okay, okay that's fine. so that's what i do um, for a living okay, f -sharp has f-sharp has a thing called type providers um which 
I really like the idea of the language supporting the ability like to define your own units and stuff like that as well. I'd love to be able to in C Sharp define, define a unit that's a length of measurement and then just have literals that are of that length of measurement. I love object literals in JavaScript. It's one of the things that in C Sharp, the ceremony that I really wish we could uh, reduce is when building applications, you often have to de declare new types for the interop between different layers, right? DTOs, whatever you want to call them. I would love the, and in web applications in particular, we need to do that in order to prevent, you know, things like mass, you know, uh, overbinding or mass assignment sort of issues with APIs. So you end up generating all these object, all these class definitions just to have them in the first layer of your API. And then you need to transform them into something else to use with your service layer or EF or whatever it might be, right? And I know people use lots of different patterns for that today. And you can use source generators now or custom things. I would love that to be a language primitive. I would love there to be a way in my parameter to declare the shape of it in the parameter definition. And even more than that, I'd love for it. To, I'd love to be able to say, I want this parameter to be a mask of this other type that already exists. And I just want these members. So if I've yeah. got like a to do, right? And it's the to do has an ID and a title and it is completed. In the create API, I don't want the ID. I don't, and I don't want yeah. the is done. I just want the title. So I want to be able to say, this is a to-do, but I want you to mask it. I just want the title. And the reason I want that is what, as I want all the aspect oriented stuff from that other type to still kick in, like requirement, you know, required attributes or schema shape attributes or any of those type of things. I want those to also apply here and I don't want to have to duplicate them. So that would be a feature that I, ha I, have, I haven't actually seen in another language, but that's a feature that I would love for C-sharp uh, to invent something. It, it's sort that. of like reverse inheritance in a way, isn't it? It is. So we call them when we, Val and I were spitballing about this one day, and I think we came up with a name like associated types. So it's basically a type that's associated with another type. It's like a peer type. Yeah. Um, and you want it to be, the other thing is that I want that to be implicitly, um, have an implicit equals operator. Convert, so like you yeah, can just pass that to an API that accepts the other type and it just works because oh. the compiler generated the implicit operator for you. So you could totally build this with source generators today. You would need to be able, you still have to declare the type. Um, but I, if you could imagine it where not only do you not need to, not only can you have a type that is automatically implicitly convertible to another yeah, type, yeah. you can declare the shape of it at the call site. Like that, that, that would be ultimate for me. That would be pretty neat. That would be so cool. Ooh. Okay. Uh, I guess we're going to wrap this up by asking, are you still into sim racing? Uh, I mean, I'm not not into it, but I don't do it very much. So uh, yeah, okay. on the other side of the wall here, I've got two sim racing rigs. One my son uses, which he uses more than I do. Right. And I've got my sim racing rig. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for the next Forza Motorsport to come out. When the next Forza Motorsport yeah. comes out, I, I'll probably spend a whole bunch of hours playing that. So yeah. Cool. Yeah, loads that came out with a new set of pedals and a, and a new racing. Yeah, I started out with Logitech stuff and then upgraded to Fanatec a few yeah. years ago. And now they've oh. got a bunch of competition because like everyone suddenly has decided that this is a growing industry. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot oh, of companies making really good stuff now. Their new thing is like 1.2K or something. It's it's where the first wheel they launched. Not is cheap. like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's an expensive hobby to have. Yes. Uh, it's much cheaper than real cars though. <laughs> yeah. Well, is, do you still drive the Tesla? 
I do. So I've got a I've got a new car coming. I've got a I've I'm a I'm a BMW guy from way okay. back, like way back in my twenties. Um, I used to have like old you know beat up BMWs and stuff when I couldn't afford anything else. Um, so I wanted a BMW electric car after my M3 you know leased out, and um, but Tesla was like the only really thing you could buy in 2019 yeah. that was worth buying. So but now that there's a the i4, I've got an i4 coming. Um, which we will actually, we don't need the SUV, we've got an SUV as well, we've got kids. Yeah. Um, so we'll probably trade that in and get that one. So I will have a Tesla and I will have the BMW electric car, but I I don't know, we'll see what happens with the Tesla. I wouldn't be surprised if we get rid of the Tesla, yeah. like in the next year. I really don't like we, the face know. of of the i4. Everything else does it for me, but that, yeah. that kidney grill that you don't need about it. Like if you get it in black, fantastic. Yeah. But if it... Yeah. Uh, that's the one thing I don't like. Have but you seen like... the CSL, the 3.0 CSL? No. Oh, okay. When you're finished, yeah. go and Google, go and look up the BMW 3.0 CSL, the new one that's just coming out, and uh, then tell me what you think of it. Wait, that thing is coming out? Yes. How have I not seen edition. this? Yeah, see, yeah. in this case, it looks good. The grill's much smaller, right? Yeah. Here, yeah. It, it looks good. It does. Oh, I wish they had taken that design. Yeah, for the, I, I don't think that I don't think the M4 slash i4 huge grill will last more than this generation. And I don't think that the i4 that it's aerodynamic enough. Like you don't need it. You can be more yeah. aero. Like even the the i8, which obviously is a whole different thing. Yeah. But even there is smaller. Yeah, the i8 was a beautiful car. Yeah, it's yeah. a gorgeous car. I, 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 it's a stupid expensive. It should be expensive yeah. to repair when you inevitably... Yeah, it's carbon fiber chassis and stuff yeah, too. So. Yeah, yeah, because I was looking into that. The insurance yeah. was crazy as well. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was so, so much fun. It was. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since I've done one of these. And we've we've all we've all watched you on the team the last couple of years as you've uh, as your community's grown. I'm, and, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. We, yeah. we genuinely love, you know, the content you're producing. We love, you know, all, all the content that's coming. And we were always excited to see, you know, new personalities emerge in the community who are producing content that people like. So, um, you know, it's fantastic to, to, to see. So, yeah, it's great to talk to you. And I hope people found it valuable. Um, and uh, I look forward to it. Doing fantastic. it again. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. I think it's 11 there or 11.30. It is. Yeah, it's 11.30. I'm going to go have my second coffee. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here and have a great day. Thanks, Nick. We'll catch Bye. you later, mate.